Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krauss, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners and general partner of Town Hall Ventures. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. Rob Vorhoff. I mean, he's like... Does it get better? You know, like we often say like, you know, I'm not going to be Richard Park at City. I'm not going to be Bill Frist. Yeah. I'm not going to be Adam Bowler or whatever. But I could be Rob Vorhoff, but I'm not. (laughs) So it's like, it's like, you know, it's like... like, I'm not going to be Ben Affleck, right? Like that's not going to happen. I could be Rob Vorhoff, and I'm not. But by the way, the funny thing is like, he's been so successful Super he is like yeah. one of the nicest yeah, best guys guy. like he always make time for you he's always there to like as a sounding board he's not more important than anyone else he's just like guy who just gives and good things happen for him and yeah. he has made a lot of money look at his investments right and they're now. also really good companies they're great companies yeah yeah, They're really thematic as you've talked about. Anyways, Rob is the managing healthcare partner at General Atlantic, which is, you know, Arguably one of the most one of the best. funds. Yeah, one of the best. Got a really cool history, and he's got a great view into what's happening in healthcare. He really knows his stuff. He is, I've seen him in situations where he's talking about policy, and he's very, very knowledgeable, and I think it comes across. And a good guy. All right. Robert Vorhoff, healthcare partner from General Atlantic. Welcome to the Healthy Dose. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my first question is, how much did you hate your parents for naming you with two Bs and Robert? Well, you know, it's a family name. Okay. It's my- Way to start it off, making yeah. out of his whole family lineage. Yeah, thanks a lot. So that's my from my deceased grandmother. I appreciate <laughs> you speaking, bringing her back up. Right. And it's, uh, it's her maiden name. It's my dad's first name. Okay. It's my middle name. And I'm What's your first name? Nicholas. Okay. And I'm embarrassed to say, until today, at lunch, I didn't realize it was the common Dutch form for the male version of Robert. And you learned that today? At lunch. <laughs> By the way, the hit rate of Trevor offending healthy dose guests on first questions is about Come 50%. On. It's like better than my investing hit rate. <laughs> I'm not offended at all. Wait, that's way better than your investing yeah, hit rate. He goes right out of the shoot and just offends. That's like know, 10 times your investing hit rate. <laughs> or not you, he offended your grandmother or mother. Or She's something turning like that. her grave. She's yeah. really upset about it. You grew uh, up in New Orleans, right? Grew up in New Orleans. You don't get, have an accent. Get back there a lot. I know. I'm kind of embarrassed. It takes like two weeks now to come back. But it was probably year like five or six in New York when it fully faded. But I go back a lot. My wife's from New Orleans. Both of our families are still down there. So we go back a bunch. What was that Good like? town. Growing up there, it's a special place. Which you don't appreciate how special it is when you're there, of course. Cause you're now drunk that I, and on Bourbon Street, right? <laughs> yeah, at eight, eight years right. old. Uh, but now I travel, you know, I go everywhere for work. And there are lots of awesome places, obviously, in the country. But I think culturally, it's pretty unique. Why is that? Slow pace of life, melting pot of cultures, big focus on sort of joie de vivre, you know, food, music, just the quality things in life, family. How does someone who likes a place that has slow pace of life end up in this godforsaken New York City? I know. In in, in the race, I'm a transplant. 
Uh, it's funny when I land in New Orleans, I feel like the heart. I'm sure you do. Slow. Yeah. You know, like unwind a little bit, reacclimate. But my wife suggested she's an interior designer. I wanted to go into finance out of college, and she wanted to go into interior design. She's like, let's live in New York. You guys met in college? No, dated senior year of high school. Oh, really? Wow, yeah. high school oh sweethearts. God. Which scares people up here. It's a complex yeah, culture. I know you said it's a melting pot, but I think the culture was somewhat exposed in Hurricane, right? It's a bit of a have and have not culture in New Orleans, or is that not the case? I don't know if it's different. What is it? It's a blue city and a red state. You probably have wide disparity in that a challenged public school system that's underfunded with a lot of people with advanced post-secondary degrees, and so that creates a, a bit of a class divide that's there, and there's probably some natural tensions that are across the South. Yep. Now, all that said, particularly around New Orleans cultural events, any of those differences I just mentioned disappear. Is that and right? you're hanging on the street side by side with all people that are happy to be enjoying life and extremely proud to be in New Orleans, and yeah. it's awesome. Growing up there, like the path from there to high finance and private equity is, were you the only one from your high school class to make that? Well, he went, that he's move? a Wahoo, right? Uh, Wahoo, I am, I did go to Virginia. Yeah. No, I know, but like, um, was that an orientation? No. You grew up in a business family? No. So I went to Virginia because one of my uncles went there. I applied to all the schools that my dad and his three brothers applied to. It was a really careful, diligent process. Yeah. I loved UVA. I started out in engineering at UVA, which was really hard. I think I got a 2-7 my first semester. My dad said, you're going to enjoy LSU. <laughs> uh, and uh, then I transferred in the undergraduate business program. There's your junior and senior year at UVA. And uh, that was awesome. I just loved it. And then I wanted to go into investment banking. My uncle was an investment banker. My dad's youngest brother, my godfather. And he, um, he told me he didn't think I was smart enough to be an investment banker. Oh. Again, comment on my grades my first semester. Is college. that right? And then when I got into that, I really wanted to go work at Green Hill right out of college because they had an investing arm. It was very hard to get exposure to investing right out of school. And so I got a chance to do that the first year, and I just loved it. And I was like, "That's I'm all in on doing that. What about it? The, what do I like about it? Because at that age, you're just getting shit on and deals. Yeah, right? you're just like, trying to figure out which way's up. Yeah. But um, I think the ownership of it, like that is such a huge part of the hey, this really matters. Like everything you're working on is not a pitch. It's like a, the importance of getting the decision right because there's no take back. Like it's like you're in, you own it. And it's, guess what? That was a good or bad decision and careers end with a very small number of bad decisions. So yeah, um, I at least felt that right away and perceived it with everybody I was working with, the importance of everything we were working on where maybe in some other sides, you felt like you were cranking and doing a lot of work, but it didn't always feel like it had the same purpose or importance. When did you know you wanted to invest? Oh, mine is totally random. Really? I, I met a guy I liked who was a partner at Bessemer, and I wanted to be like him. How old were you then? 25. Okay. I thought you were going to say like eight. <laughs> no, no, no. I had no, no. I had no idea I was going to be an investor. Like, I did not, like, coming out of college, I had no idea I was going to be an investor unlike you. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to be a journalist. That's what I did. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You don't remember my did you do that in yeah. school? I yeah. do. I forgot yeah. it. Yeah, and then it worked out in writing. <laughs> that's like that's like working as hard or harder just for less pay. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of similarities though. Think about journalism. You're turning apart stories, trying to get. Yeah, the you're truth, trying to. Right? You listen to people a lot. So wait, you were like 25 when you joined GA then? Oh, was I 24? Yeah, wow. I've been there 15 years. No MBA. 
No MBA. So, so it's a rare were, thing at GA these days. But yeah, you're no, the only yeah. person at GA who doesn't have an MBA and has a beard. Uh, no, <laughs> the beard quotient's going up fast. <laughs> really? Uh, there's some Did you break there, the there's ice some, there? There's some concern about that, actually. Um, uh, is that like too risky for GA? No, it's just sort of like proliferating the younger ranks. Are beards in fashion, by the way? I've, I've <laughs> Trevor's had a beard ever since I know. Yeah, since Red Sox won the World Series in 2013. My son made me grow a beard. This is like a playoff beard my son, that you haven't shaved? My son made me grow a beard when it was like the Red Sox were like blood, sweat, and beards on the 2013 oh, run. Oh, that's right. It worked. And uh, I was like, I'm sticking with this. By the way, podcasters really love listening about your beard stories. <laughs> Huge hit. Tell the listeners, for those who don't, like, GA's got like a, obviously it's an illustrious firm. It's got an interesting history. Can you like tell us a little bit about it? Sure, thank you for saying that. So it's been around a long time, 38 years. Started in 1980. The history of it is a pretty interesting story. I'll give you guys the real short version. A guy named Chuck Feeney, co-founder of Duty Free Shopping, you see in airports, wakes up in 1980, starts reading about and becomes a big believer in giving while living, donates all of his wealth and founds something called the Atlantic Philanthropies, hires our founding partners to effectively manage the assets on behalf of that charity, which is the namesake of the firm. And for the first 10 years, in 1980s, GA was just that. It was a captive investment office for that charity and invested almost exclusively in enterprise software, all minority growth investing. Sorry, um, but the proceeds of those investments were going to fund charitable contributions? Well, the only limited partner was that charity, was the Got Atlantic it. Philanthropies. Okay. So your job was to make money for them so that they could give it away. Right. So the Chuck Feeney story, there's a book written about this called The Billionaire Who Wasn't. Great book. First half, it's about his entrepreneur like building this empire of duty-free shopping. The second half of it is about the next 35 years, how he thought about having an impact on the world and giving while living. That's cool. Amazing individual. You he's, know him well? You spent no, time? I, oh. I've met him a couple times. Okay. So I don't know him well at all. But I think he's given away almost $8 billion now wow. in his lifetime. Just extraordinary human being. But it's a big part, like everybody at the GA knows that story. Everybody knows that's, he really founded the firm. It's a big part of the culture of the organization. And I don't know whether you want to get in this, but the origins of the firm are not beyond the Feeney story, are not traditional endowments and pensions right. and sovereign wealth funds. Right. You basically, for many, many years, GA General Atlantic was built on, as a, effectively an interesting set of high net worth families that... You were given an opportunity to build companies without having the timeline yeah. of having to produce IRR to go raise your next fund. Is that Talk about how that influences the culture of an investment fund, because I think most investors have to go out every three years and raise a new fund. And so a lot of what they're doing from a portfolio construction standpoint is setting themselves up for their next fundraising. You guys never had to do that. Yeah, and honestly still don't. So the, the reason why that structural differentiation we think is of value is exactly that. You don't have an incentive for fundraising purposes to exit investments. We think therefore that doesn't influence the advice, the support that you're giving to those portfolio companies. There's the flexibility to hold them longer. Our average hold period is probably around six years, but there are a lot of cases where things that growth thesis remains intact and we're holding them for 10 plus years. So it's, we think the structure fits well, frankly, with the strategy and it's very hard to replicate. I've got the oldest venture capital firm <laughs> in the country. How old, and how old is best 100 years, 100, Holy 100 and how? That's amazing. Years or whatever. And I've got a private equity years. firm that I think is widely known for having one of the best cultures in private equity in GA. So I'm three months in a, a fund. Like your culture and your culture are known across the yeah, industry okay. as being differentiated. Yeah. So talk to people or talk to each other. Like what are the dynamics of your cultures that differentiate it from other private equity firms where they don't have the long... I mean, we're seeing a lot of succession issues 
and firms breaking up because they don't have the culture. They make money, but they don't have the cultural values. And so how does how do these two firms, Bessemer and GA, they're two storied firms, how do they differentiate themselves? I mean, for us, one of the things that we have done generational transfer really well, I think, and it's merely the fact that, you know, nobody's name's on the door. So yeah. when we have a structure where you earn your way into the management committee and then when you're, when you're gone, you're gone. You know, I think one of the issues is the older guys at these firms, they don't do new deals. They don't contribute a lot of, you know, gains, but they still get a lot of the carry. And that creates a lot of, you know, anger amongst younger people, right, who are doing the work and not getting the large share of the economic gains. So I think that's been really huge for us. And we're really decentralized, so we give young people a lot of responsibility. We're also scorecard-driven, so, like, you don't hang around if you don't do do well at the firm. Let me push you. Most of what you just talked about was performance and economics-driven. So, like, do you guys hire different people? I mean, you and I work, Rob, would, would you and our, I work on Would our on firms talent. hire the same person or, or different? Is well, that that's actually a good way to put it. Like, do you think the DNA of someone who works at a culturally sound private equity or venture capital firm is different? Or do you take people who are transactional or, or are not cultural and are they forced into a model because of the way the organization works? Does that make sense? I feel like I'm telling this often when we're recruiting people and everybody says we've got a great culture, we're collegial, all that good stuff. I think one, GA has done, from my perspective, a really impressive job with the generational transfer, particularly at the CEO level, which happened about 10 years ago. But think about the business model. Both of us are primarily minority investors. Right. Uh, I assume for Bessemer, all. it's all. Yeah. For GA, it's about two-thirds of the deals. And that's really the culture of the organization. And if you're a minority investor, put aside whether you'd like to have a good culture, like you can't be a jerk. Like The, yeah. the entrepreneur yeah. at the Great New Deal is not like, well, great, I really want to bring in that guy or gal to be my partner. Like It yeah. just doesn't work. And it's just fundamental to the business model. So as a result, it, it tends to build on itself and create, I think, a pretty great culture. How important, everyone thinks about venture and private equity as a finance job, but how important is like really good financial skills versus really good relationship skills versus, I mean, what I find interesting is I probably work more closely with you on some of this stuff, Rob. You're incredibly operationally involved in these businesses, it seems like. How important is the finance element versus the relationship element of it? I mean, I think is it got, different? And that's the other yeah, thing. It's like it's probably we're venture not, capital we're not, we're and private not, equity. Well, listen, yeah. our best companies are ones where we make a good investment in a great entrepreneur and we get that f out of the way. Right. You know, and so and, like, and that's doesn't that just, sound great? It's yeah. amazing. That that happens, I told you, like, so those wonderful. are the ones I want. Yeah. Um, so there, it's judgment. I mean, you know, financial modeling and stuff that I'm sure matters to GA is not very relevant for us. It's really judgment, which is hard, right. yeah. and it's and it's relationship. It's relationship building and winning, being able to sell. After that, you know, the, the companies you, that we work you, hard Steve, on. Steve, you have more of a capacity for a loss. Like, GA writes, yeah. you write big, like, yeah. you can't no, have. No capacity for loss. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> not, that's not really true. I think that's just a healthy frame of mind. <laughs> no capacity. For I don't have capacity for loss, this is, too. But yeah, like this, is in, this is not speculating. This is investing. First rule, don't lose money. Yeah. But, uh, look, to answer your question, I think particularly in the early years of your career within a private equity firm or even a growth equity firm like GA, the financial outside is paramount in order to be successful within the firm because there's a pride around the rigor and diligence, how analytical you are, how close you can get to unit economics of the business, how close you do appreciate the value drivers of the business. Yeah. And all that should ultimately inform the diligence and where you're focused and your conviction and then the prevention of error. The value and the re that you will make different degrees of money depending on 
judgment, picking the right places, picking the right teams, all that stuff. My view at least is you will not lose money because you did really good diligence. And so it starts there at an early page. I think at a more senior level in the organization, it's much more about the relationship building, the judgment, your conviction on the theme, your ability to be a great value-added partner. And so interesting, just philosophically, you, Steve, I'm pointing to Steve, you are looking to make 10 bets, have one of them be enormously big, a couple of them be reasonably successful, and the rest of them. And you are looking to make... You're making three investments or four investments, and you want all of them. You don't want a lot of variance. You don't think you're going to get a 10x, but you sure as shit don't want a 0x. You're trying to underwrite to two and a half to three times a turn. Could Rob do Steve's job and Steve do Rob's job, do you think? Is the art of writing a $100 million check different than the art of writing a $10 million check? I think it would be hard for me to do his job. Because when I look at opportunities that are, you know, GA writes checks anywhere from 50 million to 500. There are very few situations that are on theme, right financial profile, et cetera, that are in that 300, 500 range. Let's go click down. If you're going from 300 to 150 or 100, there's 10 to 20x the number of deals. And from 100 to 50, another 10x, right? 50 to 25, another 10x deals. And so the great thing about the spectrum of that 50 to 500 I referenced is it allows you to be very thematic because it's a lot of flexibility in what stage, company, what ownership stake, all those good things. You can be really focused on where you're going to go. The danger is that you get really distracted because there's a lot more things you can churn through. I think if I had the flexibility, I think you have it, Bessemer, I would have to teach myself the discipline of, I know that sounds great and that's a really smart person and that's really interesting, but I, I don't have time to spend on that. Like I'd be very interested to hear how you focus your time not well. And say, <laughs> and say no. you got to say no a lot, I'm, I'm assuming. All the time. Are you yeah. both thematic? I wanna, we're going to talk about, you were starting to head on services and we want to talk, but are you, both, are you both thematic? Do you develop a theme? Bessemer's definitely takes pride in being roadmap. Do you develop a theme and you go, and do you develop a theme? It's like beaten into you at, at General Atlantic. It's thematic growth. And the whole idea of being thematic is you're identifying areas where there's a rising tide, lifting all boats. You become a student of those areas and you try to pick what you think are the best company or team. That should help you get disproportionate market share capture and therefore easier to get the growth. And growth has driven 90 plus percent of the returns for us historically. So 100%, like we present, here's my deck on my thesis. Here's the types of companies we want to go find. Here's where we want to play across the value chain. Now, are there opportunistic things that come up like great companies? You're like, wow, like I wish I'd seen that. Yeah, and you jump all over it, but. I, same. 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 I think the better question that you've asked a couple times is like, is healthcare service and IT a better growth investing plan? The reason, like I say, I would like to do Rob's job. Well, I might not. No, I'm not sure well. <laughs> I'm not sure as well as you. But I do think it's like, I think the beauty of what he gets to do is that healthcare is fucking hard. We know that, right? Get the sales cycles, you know, prove the product market fit. Yep. And it just is so much slower than the SaaS businesses that you guys invest at the early stages, right? And so I think... He gets to see platforms that are just so much more mature. And as we know, they're so freaking sticky once you get these things into customers. So I'm really envious. But I think it's, it's interesting about GA because GA was known as a technology platform. But your deals, MedExpress. Their services. More services, services now. Right? More services. That's what I want to see. that like, shift. Yeah. How does that happen inside yeah. GA? If I'm in healthcare, I think there are not a lot of great pure healthcare IT companies, frankly, in the space that are going to grow That's and right. become billion-plus-dollar companies. That's right. So, they're very far and few between. So if you're trying to figure out how do I invest behind the companies that are solving big problems, you've got to be more flexible than just 
software investor. Why do you think that is? I mean, you have such a unique angle on the healthcare economy, and you know, why do you think there aren't more great healthcare IT companies? I, I agree with the thesis, but that why should that, why, why? Like, we know all the stats, right? 25, yeah. 30% of GDP it is in desperate need of technology. Like, why aren't there more great companies that are of scale? I think the biggest thing is behavior change, and it's very hard to change behavior. Most of, at least where we're focused in healthcare, is trying to find value. Value almost by definition requires behavior change. I don't find a lot of technology that in and of itself will change behavior. And a services component helps manage that. Did you guys try to take a run at the EMRs? No. I was more scared off by government influence driving demand and having to... So in hindsight, you probably regret that move. Really? I don't well, think I'm, so. No, I'm just saying, I'm no. saying that was probably the last category of where there was real tailwinds. Whether or not it created true value is an argument, but there was like demand for it. Could be government generated demand, but there's demand. I mean, you know, there's real sizable companies built. Athena or Cerner, those are your options, right? I mean, of the big guys. Hey, 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 you could have written a 50 or $100 million check. I mean, it'd be on the small, we were, in, in we, the vertical software. And we were in invested in Eclipsis in right. the 90s, again, okay. before my time. I was just and wondering so whether you like the vertical EMRs you regret. You know, I, doing. I wish we'd been earlier on it. I wish we'd invested in those five years ago. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now they're so expensive. No, no, I'm, I don't disagree with that. I was just wondering, they're like, tough. that's the last category of yeah. true healthcare IT that... Well, I mean, Health Catalyst is going to make people a lot of money. Agreed. That's largely a technology company. That's a technology company. company. I mean, it's, 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 on a, it's on one hand. It's not... I know, right. Not no, no, companies. I agree with Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. But that's weird. Every other major economy has... I mean, look at your whole software practice, right? And, and for... An like, industry, the so, like, the construction industry has, like, five great companies yeah. in it, right? In, in an industry where you'd argue, you know, broad technology adoption 20 years behind right. other it's, sectors, right? It sort of depresses me that GA, which is one of the best firms, is not that interested in healthcare IT. Yeah, but wait a second. There's, again, there's two different categories. The reason why GAs... There's plenty of healthcare IT companies that, you know, go to 100 to 250 million... An enterprise value. It's a venture capital play in some ways. It's not a private equity play. Like you can invest in a company, you can invest no, five or 10 million. I, I, my only point is in theory, and I'm not being critical, is GA, which is one of the best firms, should be interested in healthcare IT. But it's not because, as your point, it's tough to make money. Yeah, I wouldn't weird. say we're not interested in healthcare no. IT because we look at a lot. I'd say it's very hard to find quality healthcare IT no, opportunities agree. that you think can go from, if we're going to write a check for 100 or 200 right. million, right, they're going to go from that scale to be worth north of a billion. Right. There's are not, I, how many, tell me how many healthcare very, IT companies there are north of a billion. It's more, is it more than five? I mean, it's no, five. no. And they, a lot of them come crashing down. Yeah. And That's we've talked about this many times. Is it, it's sales cycles against revenue per contract? Is that the equation that's all messed up? For providers? I mean, there's so much messed up, right? The whole infrastructure is all messed up. Interoperability core, is a problem. Right. You know, there's no interoperability, right? To your point, the users aren't kind of hate technology, right? I mean... Rob and I, you and I were at a dinner the other night, and we were talking about yeah. how it sounds like CMS is going to force health systems to force their EMR vendors to adopt interoperability. I love it. I love that. Right? Love Do you think it. that actually happens? Yes. By the way, not I, just, I, think, I, I think it's kind of like the role of a regulator yeah, I that. to do that. I, like, have the, to do that. I was just with Seema two days ago, name dropping, by the way. And she said they're going to force payers to share their data, their claims data, which is actually even more interesting because that's never been proposed before. So Love it. So anyway. you're um, version one of the Vorhoff portfolio, I think of as Evacor and MedExpress. Is that fair? Yep. Yeah. Version two of Rob Vorhoff at GA is Alignment, Landmark, Oak Street Health and now one oncology. 
maybe a couple of other things. But there's a big difference between the thematic approach to those two portfolios. Yeah. Right? Evacor utilization management, payer services business, save money by UM. MedExpress is, a, I think, what most people would say is a traditional urgent care business. Yep. And then suddenly something happened along the way and you're like, fuck, Medicare Advantage, <laughs> right? Like yeah. Alignment, Landmark, Oak Street Health. These are like some of the best names in value-based care. What, what was that moment where you're like, I'm going a different direction? The MedExpress investment was an important one yeah. uh, for the GA healthcare practice because it was our first investment in a provider of care. Hmm. And in theory, taking reimbursement risk. Now that's the shallow end of the pool. Great economic Great. value proposition for everybody. We talked about that as an organization. Like, are we, we're now investing in providers of care. That started out, I know exactly what, we were looking at a company called Inspiris. We tracked it for two years. We almost did the deal. Mike Tudine. Mike Tudine, God bless him. Uh, he sold to United. I still, every time I see him, say he shouldn't have done that. He should have done the deal with us. But that sort of appreciation of the concentration of spend in a subset of the population and how poorly the fee-for-service system is designed to care for that population, that was a, a, like an eye-opening aha moment. And then, of course, the national debate, primarily around ACOs, whatever those were in the beginning, was all around, okay, how do we shift through Obamacare? How are we shifting towards a more value-oriented system? And we were just debated it and said, look how well this has worked, primarily in Medicare Advantage, where that economic construct had existed for a long time and had allowed for an incentive for care delivery innovation. It's largely risk adjustment, right? Which is... I don't agree, no. no. I think that's fundamental to pushing risk to providers. You have to find a way to remove the incentive to cherry pick yep. risk. Yep. So risk adjustment is fundamental to yep. value-based care from my perspective. But those that are successful at it, ultimately, yes, you have to document acuity accurately, but more importantly, you have to have a clinical model. And we just started to say, okay, then how do you think about how does that shift happen? How quickly? and in what format across different populations. Mm -hmm. The way I would describe Evacor was two things. One, we thought that was gonna be the fastest way to shift, to pursue value in a commercial population. A lot of the thesis was around a change in buying behavior of health plans and their inability to preserve margin through price, and therefore a much bigger need to try and manage medical expense. MLR. And Evacor's programs, their portfolio programs, the nine programs in aggregate touch a quarter of medical spend and they reliably across each one generate 15 to 20% savings. Mm -hmm. So you go to a health plan and say, that's turn on a switch and down. drive that, that's an incredible value proposition. So that was different, but it's, it was the first out of the shift to value investments. The ones that you characterized in the second bucket were more focused on Medicare Advantage and more focused on an overinvestment in primary care and managing and coordinating care for that concentrated pool of spent where the fee-for-service system was most efficient. And that was you know, launching a technology-enabled Medicare Advantage plan with a, a clinical model that had proven at CareMore, that's alignment, risk-bearing primary care with Oak Street, in-home risk-bearing, right, polychronic care management in Landmark for like sickest of the sick population. And we thought about each of the value chain, like what do we think is the best company, like great to hear you say it, but wh where do we think was the best company in each one of those areas? And then chased hard to try and become you made more bets of than any other single private equity firm, I think, in that space though, right? I guess that's the flip side of being thematic is let's hope we're right. Yeah. Because if that, that thing doesn't play out. Right. I mean, now you have John Kao, who was one of the real principal architects at Caremore. You had Adam, but we kind of knew Adam was leaving. Yeah. Now you have Nick Lopercaro at, 
who's a major operator manager, yeah, right, and you have Mike Picos. So those are three totally different CEO profiles. Totally different profiles, you're right. Very yeah. different people. Yeah, all stars, but it, very different profiles. Yeah. So yeah. you don't have an in the bag CEO profile you look for. So what do you look for? I don't have a you know the I like this profile. I mean, ideal is probably someone that's in there from my experience, like 40s, done it before, been in a leadership role or successful entrepreneur before, it's not their first time, but still really hungry and driving hard. And someone that understands our world and the equity value creation story, right? They just haven't been in pure operations before, like they understand the the value creation side of it. That's a great natural leader. If strategic too, it'd be great. But like you said, they're all different. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about one oncology. I I think most people listening to the podcast don't know about One Oncology yet. This is a company you guys created inside GA. So different than a classic hmm. kind of PE deal. Yeah. And it's not a, I mean, there is a M&A component to growth, but it's not full-blown acquisitions. You want to talk about it for a second? Yeah. So unusual for us, we probably do that type of deal once every, call it five years. Alignment was in some ways that way. Alignment yeah, was, right. you know, yeah. hundred plus million dollar Series A that we staged in over a two year period. This is how big of a Series A? This is two hundred. <laughs> uh, so this is this is a bigger this is a bigger bet. Um, there's some, there's some acquisitions involved. It's like my capital budget for like eight years. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we got a call. CEO of Flatiron, which is the leading community oncology based EMR platform, called a guy on my team, Dave Calori, and said. Look, we think there's a really interesting opportunity to build an MSO within the community oncology space. And people are not happy with the current alternatives. The field is evolving rapidly. We want to be the technology partner to this new entity. And we'd love to work with you guys on it. So we were fortunate to get that call. We launched into flushing out the thesis, identifying which practices you'd want to start with, recruiting a team, and having gotten some people that have been part of the really successful run of U.S. oncology, probably a decade plus in ago. Flatiron. And then members from the Flatiron team ultimately transitioned over. And then the big, you got to go get it. And this was the, the pushback from our investment committee. They said, look, we love the thesis and we worked on it for a year. So we think you're dead on. You got to get a CEO. And that's where we were so fortunate to get Tracy. And we, Trevor, you know this, but Tracy had run the Uniprise, the the TPA business within United, huge job there, and then had worked really at GA as an advisor for six, seven years prior to taking the job running the health plan business at CVS. And getting him to leave that huge job to effectively come to a startup was a huge validation, not only of the thesis, but I think of the appeal of the risk reward for our investment company. By the way, for the record, he's, Tracy is running a huge business yeah. CVS. He's at a WeWork in Nashville. He's going to laugh at this. He's at a WeWork in Nashville wearing flannels and drinking kombucha or something. <laughs> like that. He's like fully bought in on the entrepreneurial stuff. You and I have talked about this before. Healthcare's, I'm pointing at Steve again, healthcare's well suited for these type of de novo growth equity deals. Yeah. That's what I was saying before. Yeah. yeah. You put a lot jealous. of money in, you recruit yeah. a Tracy ball, you don't fuck around with the seed and series right. A and series B right. and series C and you die, you know, die death of a thousand cuts. <laughs> yeah. and, right. You know, three CEO changes along the way, Right. you know, like right. each Thanks. time sets the company back yeah, for right. a year. So where are you investing next? What theme are you investing in? I got to do my due diligence here. 
Who, us? Him. Oh, no, you're looking at me like, why do you want to know what I'm doing? I want to know about GA. What's GA doing? I'm here about Because if he tells me what he's doing next, I'm going to fund something and then throw it off to him. I'm doing it years after Trevor. I buy your shit. I sell shit to him. Trevor's on the front line. I'm asking Trevor where to invest This is the process. I have to build something. Steve's got to fund it, and then you've got to buy it and grow it. Right. Right. I dilute you, and he dilutes me. It's like it's a family tree. It just works. It just works. Um, we've continued to focus on this shift to value. It started out with carve-out risk, right, within a therapeutic category for commercial populations primarily, global risk within Medicare populations because it already existed, and so you had a lot of established business models there. I would really like to find a way to play something in the managed Medicaid space, and we're spending yeah. time thinking through that. Now we're thinking about other specialties. One oncology was a play. We had three states, recent election, three states adopt Medicaid expansion. Yep. You think Medicaid expansion, managed Medicaid becomes a... A predominant, I mean, it is in many states, but do you think it ultimately is in almost every state? And yeah, I think right now, I think it's yeah. something like 60% of Medicaid sits under a managed Medicaid. Yeah, program, I right? think one, I, I just think the states are not frankly equipped to manage it otherwise. I think right. they'll push it to managed care organizations. Yeah, right. I think the big challenge is going to be access. It's how do you get providers to engage with that population. And that's yeah. the problem we're trying to think through. But the two things where we're spending time thinking about Medicaid and how to provide more higher quality value-oriented care to that population and then the commercial population. And the levels of dissatisfaction from large employers, I think, is reaching unsustainable levels. So, so trying to think through it. 5,000 hospitals today in the market 10 years from now, how many hospitals are there in this country, do you think? 4,000. 4,000, 20% reduction. Yeah. And I think probably a greater reduction than that in bed count. Way over capacity. Yeah. Is this your lightning round? Yeah. I used to do this, and now yeah, you're go, like, fire. Now, now you're now you're like, uh, okay, biggest company in healthcare in 20 years: Apple, Amazon, United, Walmart, Optum, Google, United, United, United. Yeah, not not close. Take United out. <laughs> oh. Uh, I was about to say, I don't think there's one that's going to be remotely close to United in that, even in that time period. So no one catches them? No. no not of that group. Yeah. Anybody uh, else catch them? No. No. That's just a huge execution lift to do that at the level that United and Optum. Okay. Full disclosure, that's my largest personal holding is yeah. United stock. Yeah, so baby. Well, actually, it should be way. Amazon. Uh, but second should be United. I keep waiting for the buying opportunity in Amazon. <laughs> that was 10 never, years ago. It never comes. That was 10 years like ago. Killing me. Tech companies, which is the biggest player in healthcare. Google, I think. Why? Not as a healthcare company, though. Yeah, as a data, uh, I think, primarily company. Yeah. Uh, Apple just wants to sell devices. Yeah, Let me answer just, the question. I don't want you. I don't want to hear you. He's our guest. I, I just don't. I don't see them as active. It's sort of device innovation on the margin. They pulled in their own primary care clinic. They're, that would be another data point. But it's for their employees at one location. So it's. I just don't see them as committed or as active to it. I don't think it's as natural of a fit with their what appears to be their strategy anyway. You're, you're, um, Amazon would be my number two. That was the one I thought about whether I'd say Google or Amazon. You're pretty political. I know that. Without talking about politics, you think. Medicare for all, some form of universal payer, and what do the Democrats do in 2020 beyond pre-existing conditions to make healthcare a driving force in the election, in your opinion? So I think there's a real debate for them on are they going to push the single payer. It like gets a lot of headlines, but if people have to engage in a real debate around, okay, how would we do that? I think the arguments fall apart pretty fast. We at least think about, or I think about, an overlap and I think a continuous merging of the exchange and the Medicaid populations. 
And so as a means to how do you get there, is it an expansion of an exchange population that starts to go up through the income chain mm -hmm. to get there? That's easier to see how it could get there. I don't think that actually works to drive efficiency into the system. And I think the most compelling precedent for value and driving efficiency in the system is Medicare for all. But I can't come up with a way to get from where we are now to Medicare for all. That's a massive tax bill on employers and a big change in how the whole system's mm -hmm. administered that's hard to see how you get there on a gradual basis. What I'm taking from that is no sweeping change at a regulatory level, but an expansion of the exchange business and potentially including Medicaid populations in that platform? Yeah, expansion of exchange, expansion of managed care and Medicaid, continued growth in Medicare Advantage. What I'd rather see them do is, is the things you're starting to see now, which is force a shift into value, be prescriptive about things like interoperability. Mm -hmm. I think the really interesting one is that they start to set price. And yeah. that's what I think is a much more feasible way to implement a lot of the benefits of a single-payer system while preserving, frankly, some of the best of what a free market system has. Setting price meaning, like literally setting price for drugs, setting price for... Yeah, well, I mean, think about right now you've got a commercial healthcare system where the pricing to go to your local hospital, your local specialist is night and day mm -hmm. in that commercial contract, despite all the benefits of a negotiated rate yeah. relative to the, the price that's just set at Medicare and Medicaid. And there's some subsidization happening there, of without a doubt. Yep. Uh, but if the government comes and says, hey, we're setting rates, I don't know how they do that with providers. Um, and you, you could so put boundaries on it. You could say you have a 10% window up or above whatever the Medicare rate is. But right now, you have massive swings, right? You just, but what's the difference between that and Medicare for all? Yeah, so I'm trying to come up with something that's closer to Medicare Advantage for all, because I think you absolutely yeah, need to still have someone that's negotiating a network, managing yeah. utilization, managing yeah, a benefit design, distributing the product, all that. But I agree. That, that, I think, is much more efficiently But setting price done. is getting pretty close. I think it's a big... The question is, how do they do it, right? How do you implement setting a price? They're talking a lot about it in drugs. Yeah, no, I know. Right, and there's a lot of pushback. That's that'll be where it starts. Going from there to actually services would be a big leap. You got any more? I got questions? one more. Bright Health, Devoted Health, Oscar Health, Clover Health. How do you do this? To me? Which one do you buy? Do I buy None. which one? Which one would I invest in? Yeah, which in? one would you invest in? Bright Health. Bright. Easy answer. Why do you say that? Valuation levels for one of them that while they're shifting their business model, I just think it's like extraordinarily above where it should be. And I think less about is it unattractive to invest at that level, it's the challenge I think that management team will have now when they have to raise money each time. This was not a pre-canned question, by the way. We did not discuss this ahead of time, even though we're both involved in-, in I got one last lightning round question. Yeah, go. Better podcast host, Steve Krauss or Trevor Price? How many beers did you have? Two. <laughs> and two. You guys are a tough pair. It's a tough pair. I'm, I'm gonna, Actually, like, coming like Trevor in. said, I'm political. Yeah, I Actually, coming in. I want to be Rob Vorhoff or Nick when I grow up. Yeah. Nick Vorhoff. Nick Vorhoff. Yeah. You guys are nice to have me. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks, Thanks, for, fun. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Really Thanks fun. Fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please tweet us at A Healthy Dose Pod. Yeah.